Hello, welcome everyone to our Coindesk Roads Consensus Twitter space on the future of NFT investing. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to have about an hour long conversation here with our four distinguished guests who will introduce themselves in a moment. And we'll just be talking about uh, the market, but also kind of future uh, developments and, and ways to think about investing and also new structures for investing. Before we get going full scale, I want to do a little shilling. Obviously, we have our big conference coming up. We really hope you can join us. Um, we also, just to let everybody know, have a series of events that we're calling Road to Consensus, including more Twitter spaces like this. We do have four guests here today who are deeply involved in the NFT space. And rather than try and sum up all of their connections and accomplishments. I'm going to actually hand them off one at a time and have them introduce themselves. I guess we will start with Michael Levy, who is a legendary top shot investor and also working on a new platform. And I will just hopefully let him take it and, and just talk a little bit about what you're doing, Michael, so we can get into the conversation. Thanks, David. Well, first, uh, appreciate you guys having me on and hosting this spaces and also I'll be at Consensus uh, in June. So I'll show that along with you. Hope to see some of you there. My name, as David said, is Michael Levy. I've been in crypto since 2017, got into NFTs in kind of late summer 2020. Was fortunate to stumble upon Top Shot during the very, very early days. Got pretty deeply invested over there. Added on some Ethereum NFTs to that. Got involved with, with DeFi blockchain overall. And you know, as David mentioned, I'm actually one of the co-founders and CEO of a company called Floaty. And Floaty is what we like to say the forefront of the financialization of NFTs, which I'm sure is going to be something we talk about in detail during today's spaces. But we basically support peer-to-peer -peer collateralized NFT lending on the Flow blockchain, which is where NBA Top Shot is hosted. And yeah, I'm a finance professional by original trade. I live in New York, and I think that is, uh, I'll pass it along to the next person then. Excellent. Thanks, Michael. So next, Derek, I don't know quite how you prefer to go in public, so I'll just let you take it away and talk about what you're working on. Yeah, thanks for putting this on and allowing us to be here, and uh, very excited for, for consensus in Austin. Real quick, I think I'm probably known in three different ways. One is a collector, so long-time collector of crypto art, genre of art, photography, collectibles. Also an, M an early NBA Top Shot collector. I'm also a, an investor. I run a an NFT-focused consumer venture fund called Collab Currency with my partner Steve. We're on our third fund. We've invested in projects like Artblocks and Super Rare and Axie Infinity, Quantum, and a number of projects. I think there's probably about 35 or 40 that are focused on building at the intersection of Web3 and consumer. Uh, and then I'm also an early founding member of some of the largest NFT and consumer DAOs in Web3. So founding member of projects like Flamingo DAO, Neon DAO, Noise DAO, Red DAO, and excited for this conversation and excited to, to see all of you at, at Consensus. Awesome. Thank you, Derek. Uh, and we'll move on to Magdalena Mags.eth. Tell us about yourself. Hello, Magdalena Kala. I go by Mags. Um, I've been a lifetime consumer investor, and that's the perspective I come into crypto with. First got into it in 2017. The consumer side of it didn't really take off until, you know, call it 2020. 
And that's where I've been spending most of my time all about real utility for real users and kind of mainstreamization of crypto. Outside of that and being venture investor kind of in that space, we just announced Tally Labs today. Very exciting. I also run MetaCurious, which is a marketing accelerator for Web2 marketers to move to Web3, as well as a Vitamin3 daily text-based newsletter to help people kind of get onboarded to Web3 and get more comfortable with the topics. Awesome. If people want to get on that newsletter, where would they find it? Vitamin3.xyz. You can sign up by email or by text. Great. We do have one more speaker who is possibly getting mauled by the ghost in the machine at the moment, but we'll introduce him when he appears. In the meantime, let's just go ahead and, and get into the discussion. I think that it, we, we might as well just address the elephant in the room right off the top and, and we can move on from there. The market has obviously had a rough few months. And I think that, you know, it's it's just part of the cycle and most of us are relatively used to it. But I just kind of want to hear from everybody what we maybe have learned from this current part of the cycle, maybe things about NFTs and, and how the market works that we didn't know when things were more bullish. I don't know if Magdalena, you want to you kick us off? Sure, happy to. I mean, one first things first, right? Like obviously, volume is down for a variety of reasons. And at the same time, when you look at the data, and by the way, it's down like 80%. At the same time, when you look at the kind of floors of the so-called blue chip projects, kind of the, the top, top NFT projects, the floors are actually holding up pretty well. And I think that's kind of signaling to what we see in the market right now, which is when the tide goes out, all the projects, all the scammy projects kind of collapse to zero, but all the real projects with real teams building real products uh, actually hold up pretty well. And I think that we're going to see the kind of the prolonged impact of that. Uh, and I love that. I love that as an investor because we are finally separating hype and, and utility. And I think it's good for everyone. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. I forgot to mention, just so everybody knows, we have 30 minutes of panel discussion and then we will have uh, Q&A the, for the last 30 minutes. So plenty of time for you to talk to these folks. Uh, so please hang around for that. Derek, you want to you wanna share some thoughts? Yeah, I think Mags did a wonderful job of, of kind of uh, explaining where I'm at with the recent price action as well. The only other thing I would probably add is the thesis really hasn't changed, right? So this idea that over the, the last few decades, there's really been no native way to create scarcity that travels with unique digital property you know, look at MP3s or PDFs or images or, you know, gaming content or shows or movies or whatever it might be. All of this stuff for the last few decades could be copied and duplicated without really referencing the original digital. And so when you can't reference the original, you can't also reference the creator of that original work. And that's really the power of NFTs. And and even with, you know, the, the rise and fall of prices, you know, mm -hmm. that power hasn't changed. This NFT wrapper still goes around any unique digital object. We're seeing more and more digital objects get wrapped in it. You know, the total size of people that have purchased an NFT on OpenSea is still under something like 2 million, like microscopic numbers. And so, you know, the thesis hasn't changed. Uh, in my view, we're only just getting started in terms of like the global adoption of this technology and of using and leveraging this wrapper more broadly. So still very, very excited. Excellent. Thanks. Michael, you have any thoughts? I do. Uh, I think Mags and Derek covered, uh, you know, a lot of great points there. What I'll add on to that, there's a lot of macro factors that have really negatively impacted the overall economy. And when there's a tightening of general liquidity, 
people look for different ways to to access liquidity. And so one of the ways is, you know, I'm holding valuable NFTs or I've committed, you know, maybe potentially overextended or overinvested in NFTs because it felt like, you know, we're at the beginning of something great, which which to Derek's point, I, I do think we are. Um, but I've got a lot of capital committed there and suddenly other sources of capital and liquidity are less reliable. And so I'm looking to sell assets or I'm looking to invest less than I would have otherwise. And so... I think that it's important to factor in just all markets are down. So, you know, our NFT markets that much farther down than everything else potentially. And then, you know, we start introducing things like for the last 18 months or so, there's been a huge amount of hype and excitement around NFTs and a lot of money to be made by creators and artists and IP and everyone else. So naturally what comes along with that is a lot of supply. And you know, the question is, how does the market handle additional supply like that when the number of unique wallets and unique owners of NFTs probably hasn't kept up with the amount of supply. And so you know, does that squeeze out small to medium-sized projects? Does it concentrate focus on more blue chip style assets? And it's going to be interesting to see how the next year or so plays out. Yeah, very much so. The next question, and it's kind of implied by some of the comments that you've made already, but let's spell it out. So like in this kind of environment, what's your strategic thinking about how to, you know, and maybe you could even pitch this more for like individuals who are involved in the space. How do you think strategically about, you know, surviving or even thriving at a time like this? And anybody can just jump in. I'm, I'm happy to go. In times like this, where the easy speculation is out and you're doing more momentum investing, I think it goes back to actually more venture style investing to everyone, right? Not just VCs in the space, but actually anyone who is transacting in NFTs. And that basically comes to kind of two things, right? How strong is the team and how strong is the product? On the team side, I think we'll see a lot more docs teams that are kind of holding up and a lot of the anonymous teams not because there's less trust and less kind of confidence in what that might look like. And on the product side, I think it will be just 100% on utility. And utility can have a lot of different meanings, right? But I think we'll see kind of these interest-based things, whether it's unique sports experiences or music royalties or literally anything that can benefit from ownership, the like real estate uh, stuff, just just all the utility-based things. And so from like an individual investor perspective, that's what I'll be looking at. Great team, no different than angel investing, and then utility that makes sense and it's improved by NFTs that's aligned with your interests. Nice. Yeah, I can I can jump in and add to that. I, I love the framing that Max put there. I, I can speak to more of the venture side, and then I can also touch on some of the collectibles and NFTs and the direct underlying assets themselves. But say on the venture side, it's become clear that this technology, I mean, you can't really put it back in the bottle. Like, frankly, it, it just feels like we're speeding up, not slowing down. And I'm not talking about price. I'm just talking about the technology and the adoption of it more broadly. But what's become clear to, I think, anyone in the space is that where we're going and the benefits that this technology offers is not quite where we're currently at in the tech stack. So there's things around community formation or incentives or transparency or communications. It, it really like the technology is being used in very primitive ways today to really like ossify these communities, create flow back back to these communities based on, you know, lines of effort or voting. Um, I, the truth is, is like, the promise of what this technology can offer is not where we're at. And so as an investor, thinking more on the infrastructure, having viewed how consumers are using this technology over the last 12 to 18 months, it's clear that there are some infrastructure holes that need to get patched up in order for us to like get to the next level or the next stage of how 
people can in, in, interact with this technology, whether it's PFP projects or it's collectibles or it's art marketplaces or it's the DAOs that form out of these things. And so that those are the things I'm looking at right now is like, what, what, what did we miss? What holes still need to get filled up in order to like take us to the next level? I would say on the collectible side or like the underlying asset side, I think about it in, in buckets. So there's more of like the productive assets, things like gaming assets that I think it stands alone. There's collectibles. And within that, I would, you know, bucket in like high-end generative art or one-on-one crypto art all the way down to, you know, there's, there's like all types of categories and price points that I think people are playing in. I would say at the top, I can speak to the top end of the market. I just, I, I tend to watch these markets fairly closely. You know, the top collections are fairly scarce. So you think about things like autoglyphs, there's only 512. I think about Fidenzas, there's only 999. Some of these like top end generative collections have actually seen quite a bit of movement to the upside just in the last few weeks. And it's not enough data to, to point out that these things are not correlated to like the global macro environments that we find ourselves in. But there are some interesting dynamics that are starting to kind of tease themselves out. And so these are the types of things that I'm kind of looking for is, is, uh, is how are these buckets within the NFT space starting to detach or attach themselves to some of the more macro movements? Can you actually draw any conclusions? Is it too early? Uh, and so I, I, I think it's uh, instructive for folks just to keep an eye on these different buckets and the different price points in these buckets and draw their own conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. I love the point about uh, movements in, in the sort of higher end, I guess you might call fine art NFTs, because that's something I've been really hammering on about is the difference between those and some other things. Uh, Michael, you want to talk about moves to make in the market? Yeah. In this environment? Yeah. Um, so I think Mags and Derek covered it well, and I'm obviously conscious of the time we have as well. So I'll be pretty brief. Um, where I think it's going to be interesting over the, the near term is if we separate out collectibles, just pure art, no utility or anything like that, and utility-based projects, on the utility side of things, when you start introducing and defining value, that holding this asset means you get X, Y, and Z of utility, whether that's merch or real access to parties or spin-off type projects or whitelist allowances, it allows people to kind of reconcile the value of the underlying asset with what you're actually getting at. Is it a more fundamental analysis similar to a, a public equity or something like that, or a dividend yielding stock or anything like that? And I think it's going to be interesting when people start saying, you know, w- w- these are assets that are valued by the market at hundreds of thousands of dollars. Are, you know, are we getting the sort of value that justifies the opportunity cost there? Or are we kind of coming off of an environment where one of the primary values here is price appreciation and that can't happen forever. So does this sort of utility justify the value of it? And it's always dangerous thinking to take old school valuation approaches or older technology or previous generations of collectibles and utility products and apply that sort of valuation thinking to future projects. It's like thinking of Amazon and and Barnes and Noble type valuations. But having said that, it's going to be interesting to see how the market reconciles current valuations against actual utility, not just the promise of what could be coming, but actual utility. In terms of how to approach a market like this, I think it's always important to keep a level of liquidity. There is no way to say, you know, things can't get lower than a certain price. These are assets that are largely collectibles, largely driven by how much the next person will pay you for it. And if there is no next person, it can continue to go down. So I I think people should tread carefully and not assume that there's an obvious bottom at any given point. Yeah, yeah, great point. Um, and I also, so I want to roll this right into utility came up a couple of times in, in those answers. Um, and so I want to 
kind of get people to talk a little bit about that utility and some of the the ways that that category can work. And then we're going to go, we're going to talk a little bit more about collectibles. Um, but Michael, I uh, I actually will, will ask you to wait until last because you're kind of building a primitive here. And so I want to talk about uh, kind of the bigger picture of the ecosystem. But first, let's talk about these these utility uh, NFTs. And so if, if Derek or Magdalene, if you want to dive in. Um, so I think I, I, I always take a very consumer centric view. And so one thing I want to clarify to me, a community is a utility. And so with the PFPs, right, we kind of shit on PFPs because they are these funny pictures, no real utility or a lot of promise things, not a lot of reality for, for some of them. But like if it allows people to connect and have experiences, like that's utility. The problem is that most people who are in those projects are not there for that, they're for price speculation. To me, real utility is pretty much any benefit you can have from ownership, right? And that is community, that is flexing. Flexing is actually a real utility. That's what you're going for. Um, it's <laughs> nice. all the like gaming assets, right? If it has actually a you know a productive thing. And then all these like new things uh, to kind of I think Derek's point where the technology is not yet there and the utilities are not yet there, what we think will be possible, right? But I think a lot about the most fundamental thing allowed by ownership is actually new monetization models. And that to me is so interesting for pretty much any area that has been under monetized in the Web2 revolution, right? We see it with art NFTs and we see it with uh, music NFTs right now. And so from that standpoint, I think depending on who the user is, depending on who the buyer is, the utility will feel very different. But it kind of goes back to that original promise of NFTs, which is a verifiable ownership of digital asset. And then what benefits does that asset actually allow you to then um, have? Yeah, I, I love that framing. Um, I'll, I'll piggyback on PFPs just because I think there's some interesting stuff to talk about there. There was this Masari report earlier this spring that basically was tranching out the different categories of value that existed within the NFT space. And I think PFPs and avatars represented like the largest category. I think it was something like $8 billion of the $20 billion market cap for, for the NFT space at that point in time. And if we unbundle, like if we talk about or think about like why that is, I think it gets to some of the conclusions that Mags was just drawing around like the utility of these things. Like the PFP itself, it wraps together all sorts of different things that I think people find very interesting and provides different manners of utility in ways that they may respond to. So the first is like digital identity, being able to like represent or present yourself, your physical self in these digital environments with a digital avatar. Like that is a, a pretty compelling use case. It also wraps together this idea of like community, right? So when you buy a PFP project, you are now one of 6,000 or 7,000 or 10,000 members within this community, and you're instantiated by a proxy of ownership over this asset. The uh, more utility that gets bundled into like the PFP is like this idea of verified ownership marker over like future airdrops or products, right? So you, because you have this like cookie like thing that, you, that now follows your wallet everywhere, uh, and because you're now, you know, you've proven through action that you are part of this thing, you're, you know, you, you get flow back, you get, you know, airdrops, you get to participate in the, in the future economic decisions of, of the, the protocol of the platform or the PFP project. And, and that is a utility, right? This idea that you can like claim new things in the future by a proxy of your ownership over this thing that already exists. I think uh, to Max's point about monetization, you know, what we've started to see is these, these 
PFP projects, these platforms can get very big very quickly, right? There's programmatic value flows that go back to these organizations. Sometimes it's 5%, sometimes it's 7.5%. But those value flows have bootstrapped some of the web, of Web3's largest organizations, right? So Yuga Labs, for example, just the trading volume of these board apes allowed them to start creating a game, start creating a network, start creating a token, start allowed them to buy, you know, Larva Labs as MeBits and CryptoPunks, right? They were able to amass this, you know, war chest that allows them to extend new lines of effort in all sorts of different directions. Now, the management of those resources in the future, the management of like that five to seven and a half percent, we're moving into a direction where like that may actually be embodied or bestowed to the PFP holders themselves, right? And these things start to look like DAOs. These programmatic values starts being managed by the programmatic members of the organization. That's a seat at the table. And so if I think about where we're going and utility, I think the best example of that today is avatars and PFPs. And like, we're just getting a glimpse of what this will look like in the future. Yeah, the, the point about DAOs and collaboration is, is awesome. And I do think um, there's going to be some convergence there for sure. Um, Michael, I, I wanted to get your slightly different take on utility. Um, you know, correct me if I'm if I'm saying anything incorrect here, but you know, Floaty is designed for people to be able to borrow against their NFTs, and you know, there are precedents for that in the traditional economy for collectibles, but it's a lot less liquid. And so, maybe just talk a little bit about both, what, you know, what you're building it, but also kind of the implications of having this tightly interconnected, very high speed way to, I guess, financialize collectibles, basically. Yeah. So, so I think you know, what Mags and Derek describes is a nice segue to what we're building here because, you know, we, we are big believers in NFTs overall. And I think, again, Mags and Derek really, really explained in, in an eloquent and elegant way what the value can be from NFTs. But our, our view is NFTs are here to stay in many, many forms, whether it's collectibles, avatars, profile pictures, membership cards, anything, legal documents in the future. Um, but one of the really one of the strongest advantages of, of NFTs is their ability to interact with smart contracts and what that then opens up in terms of building financial infrastructure and other kind of aspects of a tech stack around NFTs. And so what we've started with at, at Floaty is allowing people who own NFTs on the Flow blockchain to effectively use them the way someone would use an asset in a pawn shop. So it's a peer-to-peer -peer pawn shop for NFT owners. And Part of the beauty of that is that you have access to financing effectively from anyone in the world who views your underlying asset as valuable themselves or understands that a greater market may see value in your underlying asset. And so a lot of accessing liquidity today um, through traditional financial markets relies on you as an individual meeting certain criteria, whether that's citizenship or some certain level of financial means or job criteria or whatever it is. And what we are doing is leveraging the technology to allow people to basically say, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, you own something that other people assign value to. And so therefore you can leverage that item and take out a personal loan for any reason you would want to, whether it's because you want to invest elsewhere, whether you have a real life expense or whether you want to access liquidity from your valuable underlying asset without actually having to sell it in, in, in the near term. And so what's exciting about this is it's one of many, many examples of what people can do because of this underlying blockchain technology that strips away some of these 
realistically oppressive things that have manifested themselves in our traditional world here, where you go into a, a bank today, and that's assuming there's a, a, a financial infrastructure in, in whatever region you happen to be in, but you go into a, a bank and they want to see you know, your, your job, billing statements, before they'll even consider giving you a loan, then it's a three-week wait. And it's, it, instead, you can kind of say, I have an asset that is valuable. I can take out a loan from someone who I will never see, don't know who their name is, don't know where they are on a completely anonymous basis without having to rely on mm-hmm. any amount of trust just by leveraging this technology. And so the combination of the appeal of owning NFTs for all the reasons that Derek and Mags covered with the power of what you can do with NFTs interacting with smart contracts is a really exciting combination. And and Michael, just to pin down one thing, um, I mean, with the system that you're developing or or that you've got, the people who are taking out these loans, they they retain, I presume, the, um, you know, usage rights and, and stuff like that from the NFTs. So to, to, to get a, a bit more technical, the, the process essentially works as there's two parties. There's NFT owners and there are lenders. And so the NFT owner, they put up a listing on our platform that says, I want to borrow X dollars for Y days at Z interest rates. And then that's put up in our marketplace that looks like eBay. Um, and lenders can come along and say, I'm willing to fund a loan on those terms. And if the lender does fund the loan, the NFT actually gets removed from the borrower's wallet. Technically, this, this is an odd concept. While it is in the smart contract, it's owned by no one. There's no wallet that it's assigned to that like we own or anything. It's, it's held in a quote-unquote unknown location. And so should there be airdrops or anything else like that tied to your NFT, you're not entitled to it while it's in, while it's in escrow. And, and the purpose there is you want to ensure that on the back end that the lender knows that if the borrower doesn't repay the loan, the lender then gets the NFT and receives the NFT. And so uh, we remove it from the borrower's wallet to ensure there's nothing malicious that can be done by the borrower. Gotcha. Um, so we're, we're getting close to question time, but I do want, I, I have to ask one more question, um, frankly, because it's just a personal hobby horse of mine. Um, I don't don't know if this is something that y'all have intense thoughts on, but I think that especially early in this wave of of NFT mania, there was a lot of comparisons made to the fine art market, where obviously there are huge appreciations over time. Um, And I guess I'm just curious, sort of relatively briefly, what any or all of y'all think about that comparison? Are there are there parallels to the to the fine art market that we know, or is that kind of a dangerous precedent to refer to since this is something new i think it is a subset the kind of the art related nfts as a subset of um all nft activity right when you think about how the traditional art market works it's about a lot of the similar things it's about artistic appreciation but it's also about flexing it's also about net worth preservation it's also about community and it's also similarly subjective and I think all of those areas are kind of can be very similar depending on what subset of NFTs you're looking at. I think the differences are kind of all these like additional kind of utilities and benefits that we've been discussing, right? Like the art kind of stops at the flexing, the community, the kind of the capital appreciation and the thing being literally on my wall for me to look at and appreciate and then for all my friends to come by and be amazed, you know, <laughs> versus, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, there's, and there's just so much more beyond that, that we are able to have in the NFT market, even if many fail to appreciate that right now. 
Yeah, and just to, I, I think you made a very important point that there is a subset that is that is more fine art-ish. Somebody mentioned Fidenza earlier, that's showing up in galleries and things like that. So that's an important distinction. Anybody else want to chime in before we go to questions? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of interesting parallels and some key differences. So I can't remember if it was Mags or Derek who mentioned it earlier, but one of the most exciting aspects of NFTs as compared to fine art is the alignment with the artist in the sense that the artist has an incentive uh, the artist or the creator has an incentive for your asset in the secondary market to do well because secondary transactions are a new revenue stream for them. Whereas in most parts of fine art world, at least from what I know, once in a, uh, there's a primary sale, while the artist obviously has some sort of incentive for their pieces to be valuable, there isn't a direct financial stream tied to royalties. And I think that's sort of changed the game a little bit where you know, you look at some of the collections we've mentioned here, uh, Fidenzas, Autoglyphs, any, anything like that. Once you have a you know, primary collection like that, you don't necessarily need to keep creating new pieces of art, which can maintain a different level of scarcity. You have a different revenue stream, which is perfectly aligned with your user base, which is increase the value of these assets. When there are more transactions, you get a revenue stream and your collectors do well, which, which has led to, I think, a lot more collaboration, a lot more interaction, a lot more community feel between collectors and the artists. Whereas now I have a few pieces of physical art in my home and I, I don't know what the artists look like. I've never talked to the artists, whereas in the NFT world, a number of the pieces of art that I have, I've, I've chatted directly with the artists before. I'm in discords where the artist gives updates to the collectors. and. So I think that's one really, really big advantage of NFTs over fine art, um, but at its core in the sense that um, it's driven by, you know, certain subsector of tastemakers in a sense, or influencers or experts or however you want to think of people who in, in many ways kind of dictate what is valued and considered exciting and valuable by the community. Um, I, I think there, there are parallels there. And then just the, the, the nature of especially just the pure, pure art NFTs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm actually somewhat familiar with the, the traditional fine art world. And it's interesting you bring up something. Um, not only do artists not benefit from secondary sales, there's actually somewhat of a disincentive. Once artists' prices uh, get to a certain point, it actually can hurt their current sales which is uh, something I think a lot of people don't know. So a lot of artists, if their their prices get out of whack with what their current sales are, it can actually hurt them. So one little wrinkle there. There has been a, there was a request for people to talk about soulbound NFTs. Does anybody have thoughts on that? I know that it was something that uh, Vitalik brought up recently. This is NFTs that are not saleable, that are just stuck to your profile. Michael? So I have to say, I, I, I didn't see too much about that. The, the reason I went off mute is there was one other comment I was hoping to add uh, on the back of my I'll go for this it. comment, which was another really nice and interesting aspect of NFTs is that artists can see directly who owns their assets, which is obviously different from physical art where artists, you know, even if you were the original buyer and there's a receipt that says your name, they don't know if you gave it to a friend, if you sold it to someone whereas NFT art or NFT collectibles are directly tied to a crypto wallet. And so if you want to reward holders, if you want to better define holders and say, okay, if you, if you own three pieces of my art, then you qualify for something in the future or I'll interact with you directly. It's much, much easier for artists to define that. And, and so I just wanted to add that to my previous comments. But with regard to your latest question, I'll, I'll leave that to Mags or Derek. I'm, I'm happy to jump in. So, you know, sell NFTs. Essentially, the idea is NFTs that you cannot sell. And at the first glance, it feels antithetical to the whole movement because if NFTs are about free ownership, if I own something, 
I should be able to sell it. But I think that actually takes a limited view of like what NFTs can be, which is it is actually an on-chain verification of status. Ownership status is the primary thing we talk about, but there's other things that you can actually use NFTs to verify. And some of those you probably don't want to be transferable. One idea, university degrees, right? Like if I go to college and do it for four years, it kind of feels silly to be able for me to then sell my degree to someone else or driver's licenses. Like if we think about the on-chain future and having these verifications of credentials and some of these things, like it actually is a very interesting idea that we should embrace because that will allow us you know, have these verifications without central kind of authorities, but that don't have the risk of kind of messing up with some very fundamental systems of society. Great. Yeah. Um, I, so I think we've, oh, sorry, Derek, go ahead. I, I wasn't going to add too much to that. I think uh, what Mags is describing is exactly how I think about soulbound NFTs as well. I think it's part of a larger discussion about what kind of identity can we draw out of the things we do on chain, like our activities, the things we own, so our assets, or the, the organizations, the decentralized organizations we belong to, so like our affiliations. And if you take the view that NFTs are really just a wrapper to kind of provenance and scarcity and to build property rights out of these things, you can start to wrap all sorts of things we do on these blockchains. It's just a database uh, with like those three core components, the things we own, the things we do, and the groups we belong to. And from that, you can start to draw out identity. And so I, I, I think a good comp here when I think about like sold out NFTs or like, what does it mean to start teasing out identity out of like the things we do on this database? I think a good comp are like the, the mini economies of like our, these gaming environments, these MMOs, these MMORPGs over the last few decades. So, you know, inside of these games, we would own gear. We would have, we would own our, you know, friends lists, our message history. We would own the work we did. So like, let's just call it like the PVE, the trading, the quests, um, the skill tree, like our records playing against other players, like these were all activities that kind of formed the types of people we were. And then our affiliations, like the guilds we belong to or the types of class of character that we were or what our rank was or our level. Maybe we were level 99 and not level 22. These are the types of things that we would use to like form identity around these mini economies, you know, over the last few decades in these gaming environments. With soulbound NFTs, it's starting to tease out this idea of like, can we do that with this trust minimized database? Can we start to back into how we view other people on chain, not based on any physical connotation, but based on purely the digital stuff that they're doing, the digital stuff that they own, the digital organizations they belong to. And Soulbound helps accelerate that conversation in this, in this way of like, what are these things that we shouldn't allow folks to trade, but are still ownable? And can we actually start to tease out identity out of these things? I'm a fan of the mental model and excited to kind of keep this conversation going and see where it, where it heads. Great. Thanks, Derek. Um, so we do have some questions lined up. Carlo, if you're there, go for it. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for hosting this. This is really informative. All the speakers, thank you for taking the time to do this. Really looking forward to Consensus 2022 as well. I'll be attending. I wanted to call out just a couple of things. Uh, what Mag said about community being a utility, super important. 100% agree with that. Uh, you know, I think for me, community is very important. Yes, we are PFPs, but there's also a person behind the PFP. And the people that I've met in the different NFT communities and crypto communities that I've met, I've, I've developed bonds with them in a way that you haven't seen since like the advent of social media. And I think we need to uh, remember the power of community and what it, what it is capable of and remembering that there are other human beings on the other side. So thank you, Max, for calling that out as a utility. The one thing that was very that I like to call out again is the idea of 
the supply of NFTs right now, the supply of artworks being at such a high point right now, and that the consumer base hasn't really risen to meet and match that. And what you see, this is for everybody, like what you see is going to need to happen in order to kind of break down the barriers of entry to convince, you know, people who are crypto curious or NFT curious to come into the market and also to convince them that it's not just a, a fad that's going to go away, but something that has, you know, the technology has a long term goal for what will happen in our world. Thanks. I guess I will just leave that open for whoever wants to jump in. I have very strong feelings about this one. Uh, so the education 100% is very important. UX and kind of making the whole experience less painful than it is today, very important. But I always go back to how does the technology actually get adopted? It gets adopted because people have real interest in something and they will like drive, you know, run through walls to make it happen. Uh, we saw that with NBA Top Shot, right? Like people got excited about the utility and then figure out how to onboard. Obviously, Flow made it uh, much easier. But like even Axie Infinity, you know, don't want to talk about where the game is right now, but in the early days, 80-year-olds in the Philippines were figuring out how to convert currencies, download wallets, this and that, because they felt a real need and want to do that. And I think that's what it will take to get masses to onboard to NFTs and crypto and Web3, real utilities that people are excited about. And when people are excited about something, like they will figure out how to get involved. Going to throw it to Sage for another question. Hi, everyone. Mags, earlier you said, if I own something, I should be able to sell it. But you said that actually takes a limited view of what NFTs can be. And that kind of like jumpstarted the whole conversation about non-transferable NFTs. Because right now in the market, all NFTs are transferable. If I pay you some ETH, I mean, if you want to sell it. But so I, I kind of want to go more into like in-depth about soul bond NFTs. And I'm, I'm kind of like curious on what the general sentiment is uh, and current level of conversation ar around non-transferable NFTs. Cool. Uh, we'll see if anybody has more to add to that. I will say, um, and I guess maybe this is a follow-on question, but um, if anybody's familiar with POAPs, proof of attendance, I'm actually not sure those are non-transferable, but certainly they're an interesting example of, of non-transferable as an application since they're supposed to be proof that you were actually at a place. But I think that we talked a bit about that, but does anybody else have comments on non-transferables? I mean, and the only thing I would add is all of Web3, all of NFTs right now are still experimentation phase and Falbon NFTs, non-transferable NFTs within that are even more of an experimentation, right? And so I think where we are right now, we're just like scratching the surface of thinking through the potential. I actually think there is a lot of risk in trying to put everything on chain, even though it doesn't need to be. And so I think that's one of those things where I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate the exploration. But at the same time, I think we're so early in the overall space and that we're even earlier on that. I'll just add, I, I totally take the view as well that, you know, this using trust minimized ledgers for different types of things is really just experimental. I, I do believe in a world where like the information of the things we own, the time that we've owned it, the activities that we do, the organizations or the provable on-chain interactions that we engage in, these are going to be things, some of these things, not all, but these are going to be things that are going to be valuable to starting to personify some of our behaviors, even if it's not quite in the, in the realm of like, you know, verifiable identity. I do think that these can be composed in really interesting blocks to put together new types of products that serve all sorts of different purposes in the future. 
And I think soul-bound NFTs, non-transferable NFTs will have to play a role in that. But now exactly which types of assets, which types of activities, which types of affiliations, and the NFTs that may represent some of these things, which are non-transferable and which are transferable, I think that is most definitely an open question, right? Like it's going to take experimentation. It's going to take an envisioning of like what Mm -hmm. types of products can we create to serve some of these things that can be used as inputs. And so I take the view that we're very early in this like area of exploration, but people should be thinking about it. People should be talking about it. Products should be start getting created and composed in ways that are interesting to serve that need. Because I, I definitely think we're, we're headed in a direction where, where this will be an important part of how value moves in the future. We have one more question, but first I actually want to, I just want to highlight that our speakers today have, have repeatedly said, you know, experimental, speculative. You should take those statements seriously. Past couple of weeks, we have seen the risk of somebody who promises that their thing 100% works and will make you rich. So when you hear people say things like speculative, listen to them, I guess is my, my message today. So Marco is up next and has a question for us. Marco. Thank you to everyone for hosting this space. It's very informative. And my question is regarding education and on scaling. So we all know that it's pretty early days in the in the community. So as we scale and we start to include more people around the world into, you know, Web3 and NFT, um, we've seen that there's constant attacks on security and trying to phishing attacks and other types of attacks. Where do you guys see the education side of this? Do you think there's going to be some founders that will come into the space that will lead the space when it comes to education and risk? Or do you think it's going to be project to project that they'll try to educate their community. Thanks, Marco. Uh, I I think if I'm hearing correctly, this is uh, sort of about education in security specifically, which obviously is a risk. I don't know if anybody saw, but it looks like Seth Green had some board apes stolen earlier. So on the security front, obviously a lot of personal responsibility is inherent in the way these things work. So especially as we, you know, push out further into I guess you could say retail. What are the what are the risks there, and what are the responsibilities? I think of people who are selling these things. I've got a few views on this. So I think the word responsibility is interesting because part of the beauty of, of blockchain and the decentralized nature of it, and the ability for people to be anonymous if they want and put out really anything they want, is that there's no minimum requirement of education. They, can, they you know, people are free to put out what they want, and it's largely a user beware type of environment, which there are. There are pros and cons of that. We'll say, um, having said that, I think what will end up happening is there are incentives for companies to produce better UI wallets, for example. Um, and, and Mags brought up this point earlier where it's very, very imposing for someone who's not familiar with the technology to try and interact with a MetaMask or connect a wallet to a third-party platform that may end up being um, a phishing site or a fraudulent site in, in some way. And so... What will likely emerge from that is there's a great financial opportunity right now for better UI and something that can say essentially in, you know, in, in a native language or you know, plain English or whatever your local language is by signing this, by executing this transaction, here is what you're doing, here are the risks of doing so, and have you checked X, Y, and Z before proceeding? And we really lack that in a big way right now. Um, I think the education side of it in terms of whether it's content providers or you know, educational institutions, um, I think that will come with time and greater adoption. If you think about the early days of the internet, it was the wild, wild west. And today it's very, very normalized. People know what looks like a nonsense pop-up or a 
phishing scam for the most part. And of course, there are victims, but mainstream users are comfortable with that. And I think that'll come along with time with blockchain overall. But increased emphasis on UI and friendlier UI and warnings and disclaimers, I think, will be helpful. And, and that'll come as there's the financial opportunity for, for that sort of environment. I don't think we can kind of regulate it in such a way where we say, before releasing a new NFT project, you know, you need a certain level of education for your users uh, before releasing a new project or protocol or anything like that. You need a certain level of education, but there will be platforms that prioritize that and those will appeal more to a mainstream user. So we can go on to a, a question that we actually have somebody who had a question earlier. Hakan is in. All right. Um, first of all, thank you so much for organizing such an um, amazing event. And it's quite informative. I'm curious about the thoughts of the speakers. The first one, uh, we're a DAO platform and we're actually funding NFT startups. And when we take a look at them, they more or less offering the same things, uh, utility-based NFTs, PFPs. Yes, we understand they're offering some services. But there's another criteria, which is team. And you also underline that not all of them actually have a team whose work have been proved. So what do you think about those good NFT projects with the team which are not popular or not well known? How do you think we can make sure or at least minimize the risks? One thing that you're, you're sort of getting at is, and it's related, is uh, there are obviously a lot of anonymous or pseudonymous teams. So um, let's talk about you know that question, whether you're unproven or just not a real name, how do you how do you evaluate that team, folks? I can jump in and I'll riff a bit on some of the stuff that Mags was touching on earlier. And I'm sure both Mags and Michael have very interesting views on this. I'll say just taking it from like the venture side, because I do see there being a comp to what's happening in the PFP space or the NFT space more broadly as a larger extension of venture, right? So the idea that you can build a product, pool capital very quickly and create new lines of effort in you know record time, like these are starting to look very much like venture opportunities, but they're accessible not just to professional investors, but to, to a retail audience. I would say the question you're asking is like, how do you evaluate the team part of that? And I would say it's part of a larger question I ask myself when evaluating any opportunity is it's usually, I can distill it down to like, is this the right team working on the right problem at the right time? And all three of those things are have multiple subcategories that I think about. But I'll say like, for example, is this the right problem, right? So are they attacking the space with a novel product or a novel offering that feels like it's going to resonate because there's some market demand or appetite for that thing? Is this the right time? So are they, you know, building at the, the edges of the space? Are they doing something very interesting that might not see the uptake because it's just like a bit too far in the future from a product perspective? Or is it serving something that currently exists, a demand or an appetite? And then is this the right team to be working on it? And the things I look at are, does this person or team have experience working in this category, right? Have they built products that look like this before? Or do they have some adjacent experience in a non-related category that may, you know, mitigate some of like the concerns I have about whether or not they can ship product or build something special or like really understand who their audience is and serve them directly with something that there's an appetite for. So I, I say, I would look at like two things are happening. One, like, Retail is now involved in like venture at its very earliest stages, which I think we can have a larger discussion on uh, like what, what is the role of regulation in that environment? Yeah, that's you a know. tough one. But I guess more broadly, I'll just like, I'll say it really is important to like mitigate risks where possible. And so to really think about, can this team prove that they've demonstrated activity and like building something that looks just like this thing or something that may not look like this thing, but has been able to reach a consumer and end user that resonates 
are they qualified to ship? Or do they show up? Are they engaged in some level of transparency that mitigates fears on whether or not they're going to do X, Y, and Z versus you know A, B, and C? And so I would say you're getting at a really important part of venture investing and just investing more broadly, which is just like transparency, understanding, and really digging in and making sure that this is the right team for the job. Um, so we're going to have to uh, wrap it up here. One last time, this is a consensus preview panel. So if anybody wants to meet these folks in person or myself, we'll be in Austin in June. And you can get tickets right now at coindesk.com slash consensus2022. So one last thanks to everybody here. Um, we have like 30 seconds if each of you want to offer a very brief closing comment. Go for it. Sign up for vitamin3.xyz, my personal show right here. Or just follow me on Twitter. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I just want to say thank you for hosting. Looking forward to meeting everyone in person in Austin in a couple of weeks. And really appreciate everyone uh, tuning in to listen here. Yeah, I'll just say make sure to follow Mags and Michael. Very, very brilliant minds. And I'm looking forward to seeing everyone at Consensus here fairly soon. So, so make sure uh, you buy your ticket and see you in Austin. Awesome. Thanks for plugging us. And thanks to everybody for joining us. And uh, yeah, best of luck out there. Keep building and we'll see you soon. That's a wrap on today's Road to Consensus. This episode was edited by Eleanor Paul. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the special Consensus 2022 podcast episodes coming out soon.